0: Now, Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the saints in a city called Philippi. The city had received its name from Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Now, the city would remain relatively insignificant until one of the most notable events in Roman history occurred there, namely the Battle of Philippi. This battle would end the Roman Republic and usher in the Roman Empire. So after the battle, Philippi would become a Roman colony and many veterans of the Roman army would settle there in order to establish Roman laws and customs among the local people. As a colony, Philippi had autonomy from the provincial government and had the same rights that were granted to cities in Italy. These rights included the use of Roman law, exemption from certain taxes, and Roman citizenship for its residents. They used Latin as their official language, adopted Roman customs, and modeled their government after those in Italy. The fact that Philippi was a colony is noteworthy because it was a source of much pride for the Philippians. Now keep this in mind as it will be relevant a little later. Now Philippi was the first church that the Apostle Paul founded in Europe as part of his second missionary journey. This is recorded for us in the book of Acts, from Acts 16 onwards. So Paul, being prompted by a vision, goes to Macedonia... And thus arrives at Philippi, where he meets and then converts Lydia, the seller of purple. She and her entire household. Paul then stays with the new believers for a few days and preaches the gospel. During his stay, however, satanic opposition would arise in the person of a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. Paul responds by casting the demon out of her. Which enrages her masters when they see that their opportunity for profit had been ended. Because obviously they were making a good set of money by uh, fortune telling and predicting the future and all these different things. So they would seize Paul and Silas who was with him and take them before the city's magistrates. And proceed to ignite the civic pride of the Philippians by saying that Paul and Silas were a threat to the Roman customs that they held so dear. As a result, Paul and Silas were illegally beaten and thrown into prison. That night, however, the two preachers were miraculously released from prison by an earthquake. The jailer, assuming that all of his prisoners had escaped, was about to kill himself. Paul, however, shouts to him and tells him that no one had fled. The jailer's heart, trembling with fear, is then open to the gospel and he believes he then takes Paul and Silas into his own home to tend to their wounds. There, Paul preaches to the jailer's family and they too believe and are baptized. The next day, when the magistrates learn that they had illegally beaten and imprisoned two Roman citizens, as Paul and Silas were, they panicked and begged Paul and Silas to lead the city. They didn't want to face the consequences of having done something so illegal. So I'm mentioning all these things to you which are detailed not in the epistle to the Philippians, but in the book of Acts, because it shows how impactful Paul's initial visit to Philippi was. Imagine the bond that the believers there would have had with this man, Paul, who one day came into their lives, bringing to them good news and displaying the power of God. He must have had a special place in their hearts, which, humanly speaking, would explain their grit of care and affection towards him. So Paul apparently visited Philippi two times during his third missionary journey, once at the beginning of the trip and again near the end. A few years after this, his last visit to Philippi, while he was a prisoner in Rome, Paul received a delegation from the Philippian church. The Philippians had generously supported Paul... In the past, and had also contributed abundantly for the needy believers in Jerusalem. So now, hearing of Paul's imprisonment, they sent another contribution to him, and along with it, a believer by the name of Epaphroditus. And they sent him to minister to Paul's needs. It would so happen, however, that Epaphroditus would come down with a near fatal illness, and well, this was either en route to Rome or once he had arrived. And consequently, Paul would send him back along with the epistle to the Philippians. So that's how they got the letter. So Paul had many reasons for writing to the saints at Philippi. First, he wanted to express his thankfulness to God for them and the gifts that they had given him. Second, he wanted to inform them of his circumstances in Rome since he was a prisoner and encourage them. Third, he wanted them to know why he decided to return Epaphroditus to them, lest they think that his service was unsatisfactory. And fourth, he wrote them in order to admonish them to unity. And finally, he wrote to warn them against false teachers. So that's a bit of an introduction to the book as a whole. We should get a chance to explore all of these elements as we go through subsequent weeks, because this is part of a series, well, the beginning of a series. With that said, I want to tell you what this specific sermon tonight will be about. In the opening verses of his epistle, Paul shows us, by way of example, what a godly response to Christian partnership in the gospel looks like. My hope tonight would be for us to understand the reasons why Paul responds to the Philippian partnership with thanksgiving to God confidence affection and prayer for their growth we should really want to emulate this in our own lives we here at CRBC ought to be convicted to respond like Paul does to those who partner with us in the gospel now this partnership in the gospel Is central in this text because it is the reason for all the good responses that Paul has to the Philippians. So, what does Paul mean? The word translated as partnership in the ESV is koinonia, and we would have heard this word if you were listening uh, this morning in Sabio's sermon. And this word means this word koinonia means participation, fellowship association, community, communion, contribution, or sharing. Paul here is specifically talking about the partnership that took the form of great generosity. This generosity was shown by the Philippians in the giving of money and other tangible physical gifts to him and to other saints. Paul talks about this briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he implies that their generosity, the Philippians' generosity, is even more noteworthy in light of the fact that they were poor people. They weren't rich. A few chapters down in Philippians 4, Paul even says that no other church helped him in the way that they did when he first left Macedonia. So it's not difficult to see why this would have been so special to Paul. As a traveling preacher he would have had need of supplies and the Philippians were glad to help him in this way. And not only him but other Christians whom they did not even know in Jerusalem. The Philippians even went as far as to send Epaphroditus to Paul. Remember we mentioned him earlier. He was sent to stay with Paul and minister to his Needs day and night while he was in prison in Rome apparently the circumstances of Paul's imprisonment allowed him to have someone there taking care of him he was just locked up and he wasn't allowed to leave so such was the generosity and loving care of the Philippians that this love and care is what Paul is responding to in these opening verses of Philippians however Paul is not simply responding to having received material items This is not a case of Paul desiring to be comfortable by having things and the Philippians simply facilitating that. (laughs) Paul is specifically thankful to the Philippians because in giving to him, they are giving to the cause of Christ. The Great Commission. The spreading of the Gospel to the whole world. And not only that, But they are partnering in the care of God's sheep, like the needy in Jerusalem. They are helping him to do God's work. Paul is thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. By helping him, the Philippians were showing their allegiance to Christ and their love for Paul and his mission. It is this sweet, loving generosity for the sake of Christ. That moves Paul to respond with joyful thanksgiving to God, confidence, affection, and prayer for the Philippians' growth. So now, understanding this, we should also understand that here at CRBC, or at any modern day church, we are not alienated from this experience of being partners in the gospel. Think about this. Who was Paul? Paul? He was an apostle of Christ Jesus he was specially chosen, the writer of most of the New Testament. He was clearly a special man but in a sense Paul was an ordinary man, a man of God charged with the task of proclaiming the gospel and taking care of God's precious lambs. in a sense Paul is no different from a pastor today Thus when we generously help our pastors go about their work of proclaiming and ministering in the gospel as well as ministering to the needs of the flock of which even we are a part we are partners with them in the gospel and we are partners with each other as we are all saved by the same Lord by the same grace with the same good news All as we work as one body to do God's will. Being partners in the gospel is how we provide for each other and how God provides for us. So let's look at how Paul responds to this partnership. The first and most appropriate response that Paul, and indeed any believer, should have to having partners in the gospel... Is thanksgiving to God. That's where you start. God is, after all, our Heavenly Father from whom all of our good gifts and blessings flow. In our Barbadian culture, we often hear, Give God thanks or give Jah thanks or something like that. And this in response to things that a man ought not to credit to God as being given as a good gift. Think of engaging in debauchery on Kadumut day or something like that. That reminds me, that time is just around the corner here in Barbados. When the unregenerate or unsaved person gives thanks in this way, they do so from a position of ignorance because they do not know God and have no capacity to love God. So when they give thanks, they're merely expressing happiness over being able to indulge in sin as they please. But for the Christian who does know God, giving thanks is loaded with knowledge. Knowledge of the fallen state of man. Knowledge of lowliness before a holy, perfect, and righteous God of whom the scripture says cannot even stand to look upon evil. Knowledge that we are saved by grace and that not of ourselves so that no one can boast. Knowledge that while we were yet sinners, dead in our trespasses, Christ Jesus showed his love for us by dying on a cross for us. Indeed, when the Christian gives thanks to God, he does so knowing that he deserves nothing but death if it weren't for the saving work of Christ Jesus. Thus, for the Christian, Giving thanks ought to be an act of acknowledgement of sin and an appreciation for all that God has done and is doing to rescue us from that sin. This is the lens through which we should be viewing thankfulness to God for our Christian brothers and sisters who partner with us in the gospel. We don't deserve to have them, but the grace of God has given them to us for our good. And His glory. Remember this the next time you find yourself acting with apathy towards a brother or sister who has either invested in you or who is in need of your help. Do not take lightly the fellowship we have with the saints and the help that it is to us. Now, the passage of scripture that we're looking at in Philippians 1 uh, does not speak to the issue of church discipline. However, I think drawing an example from church discipline will be helpful to us in terms of understanding just how essential our Christian partnerships are. So when I talk about church discipline, I'm talking about when a brother or sister in Christ has sinned. The scripture says that you are supposed to go to them, speak to them, try to sort the issue out, try to get them to repent. And if they don't listen, then you bring another brother to come in they still don't listen, then you bring yet another brother. And it goes all the way up and it escalates until you reach the point of the church getting involved. So I want you to realize that at its highest level, church discipline removes an unrepentant brother or sister from membership in the church. The rationale of doing this is to cut them off from the help, care and partnership which is available among believers so that they feel the coldness of a world that is hostile to them. This is in the hopes that if they are indeed saved, they will repent and return. This should give us a pretty big clue as to just how important our partnerships are. Please don't take it for granted. Love your brethren and be truly thankful to God for them. The second response Paul has to the Philippian partnership is confidence that Jesus would complete the work he started in them. Paul is here inserting the doctrine of perseverance of the saints into his message. So this do- this doctrine in a nutshell teaches that those who have been saved by Jesus will continue in the faith on an upward trajectory of righteousness until either they die and go to be with Christ or until Christ returns. In other words, a Christian can be confident that they will never lose their salvation. And not only that, but that Jesus through the Spirit is working in them to continually perfect them day by day by day. The implication that arises from Paul's expression of this doctrine to the Philippians is that he believed them to be sincere and true Christians. Why? Because of the fruit that they bore. Like I said before, I'm not talking simply about the giving of material gifts, but it was the willingness and eagerness with which they gave, even in spite of their own poverty. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is saying that it is only right for him to feel confidence with regards to them because they bore great fruit. Paul was sure that Jesus would complete the work of building them up as Christians because. It was clear that Jesus had already begun to do so. And how did Paul know this? Well, the great love, care, and concern that the Philippians were showing to him. It was, it was plain to see. They were bearing fruit in keeping with righteousness. In both his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, they were all partakers of grace with him. And what does that mean? When Paul talks of grace here, he is referring to that grace from God which he has afforded in light of his sufferings. Namely, his imprisonment and the sufferings he endures for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is talking about the Philippians having shared in this grace by sacrificing of themselves in order to minister to him while he was in prison as well as supporting him from their own poverty as he defended and spread the gospel. Basically what he's saying here is the same grace that would have kept Paul joyful in Christ while he was a prisoner, while he was enduring all of the slander and beatings for Christ. That same grace that kept him joyful is the exact same grace that kept the Philippians joyful even as they were giving of themselves, even as they were poor but still giving to him. That must have been difficult. But that same grace provided for them. They're sharing in the same grace. They're all partaking in the same grace. And that's what Paul is talking about. So for us today, there's a wealth of encouragement to be had in recognizing the fruit of salvation in the lives of our fellow believers around us. At a basic level, each believer you know is the proof of the love of God and God's saving power. And in an unbelieving world that is hostile to the truth, that should be encouragement in and of itself. The fact that there are other people who believe the same thing you do, who cry out to Jesus the same way you do, who lean on Jesus the same way you do, is an encouragement when all around you are unrepentant people who all they do is scoff at God. It's a great encouragement to have partners who feel the same way you do about Christ. When you see good works being produced in the lives of your brethren. It should bring you confidence that Jesus Christ is at work. Think of all the good fruit that God has produced among us here at CRBC. Good fruit that stands as a testament to the truthfulness of Christ when he says you will know them by their fruit. We have a pastor who left his homeland to bring his family to live thousands of miles away in a country with fewer comforts than he was accustomed. All because he wanted the people of Barbados to truly know and worship God. We have men and women in here who desire to obey God with regards to their sexual purity. And so reject the worldly model of promiscuity, which is the easy way. And rather take the hard way of marrying for life and raising God-fearing children. I have more than one brother in this church who do not hesitate to help me out monetarily when I'm in need, and they do so gladly, time and time again. Brothers and sisters who, if they see you in a bad mood, they're not content to just leave you alone, but will actually spend time, even when they have their own issues dealing with, to come and invest in you and ask you questions and give you counsel and just lend you an ear. I even have a brother and sister here who feed many of us out of their own pockets every Sunday. My point is, we are often quick to despair when we forget the blessed hope that we have in Christ. That he is coming again and our suffering is only for a time. But God has placed fellowshipping Christians around us to remind us of his work. In keeping with the metaphor of bearing good fruit Think of when you walk through an area which is dry and parched with heat A place where things are dead and nothing grows You know that the soil is bad or that no rain has fallen in that place for a long time But suppose you come upon a lush green patch of land Land where there is life Where things grow and are laden with moisture. Where there are strong, shade-giving trees that bear nourishing, filling, delicious fruit. This is what it's like to be among the faithful in a sinful world. It's like being in an oasis in the middle of a desert. That is what we experience every day. No man is discouraged when, after stumbling through an arid place... He comes upon a spring. He is encouraged. He is overjoyed. Not just because he now has provision, but because he knows that there's something there that he cannot see that is giving life to all of these things that are growing. Brothers and sisters, in the church, we know who it is who is empowering the saints to do good works. Christ Jesus. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, encourage others with your good works for the sake of Christ, even as you are being encouraged. And be confident that Christ's work continues until the end. And now finally, we come to the third response. Paul, motivated by deep affection, responds with prayer for the Philippians that they grow in maturity and continue to bear fruit. From verse 8 we read For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As was said before, Paul acknowledges God as the source of the Philippian saints and their good fruit. Now his response in light of the care that they have shown for him is to care for them. Paul, as a shepherd of God's people, knows that the ultimate way of caring for them is to petition the great shepherd for all of their spiritual needs. Thus, Paul prays to God for them to mature in their Christian walk. And he is moved to do so out of deep love and affection in light of their care for him. Look specifically at verse 8 the word there translated as affection in the Greek is the word splanknon, And it literally refers to internal organs like the intestines or the spleen. So Paul is saying that he longs for the Philippians with the bowels of Christ Jesus. Sounds pretty strange. As a matter of fact, the King James Version actually uses the word bowels. If you have one, you can see it. Now, this may sound strange to us, but remember that Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago to a people from a different culture than us. So, the cultural historical context is important here. Now, with that said, it shouldn't be hard for us to understand what Paul is talking about. Since the term he uses is based on human biology. And as far as I know, it's the same then as it is now, we haven't changed. So let me tell you what he means. Our internal organs react to intense emotion, especially the organs in our lower abdomen. We may know one of the manifestations of this biological reaction as having butterflies in your stomach. So the word splanchnon became the strongest Greek word to express compassionate love. Now it is we're more accustomed to hearing about how someone loves someone else with all their heart. The next time you want to tell someone just how much you love them, hold your belly and tell them that you love them with all your insides. So that's what's in view here. Deep love that feels as if it goes to the very core of a person's being. That is how Paul felt about the Philippians. Now, some of you may be wondering, <clears throat> how do I cause myself to feel such strong feelings for my partners in the gospel? You can't just make them up on a thin air. But the answer is simple: just do what Paul does. We're following his example. Paul recognizes the good works that the Philippians did on his behalf as partnership with him in the gospel. Far from taking the Philippians for granted, far from treating their care for him as insignificant, he acknowledges their work and their worth and gives God thanks. Remember what this whole sermon is about. Responding rightly to partnership in the gospel. Deep affection that is felt towards your partners is a right and fitting response. A good way to truly acknowledge something is, well, so that you can truly appreciate it, is to imagine yourself without it. Whenever you find yourself struggling to feel affection towards your partners, just imagine life without them. Imagine being alone in this cruel world. No partnership. No help. No one to pray with no one to worship with no one from whom to draw encouragement no one who cares no one who when you try to live a righteous life at work and you get criticized and mocked and laughed at no one you can call and say shh you believe this no one on the other end of that life who's going to say to you stand strong brother Christ Jesus is with you no one you can run to Imagine that. That thought should terrify you. I can tell you it's depressing to think about it. That is, until you bring yourself back to reality and acknowledge the truth that Jesus has not left you alone, that He cares for you, He encourages you, He loves you, you can't help but naturally respond with deep affection both for him, that is Jesus, and for the partners that he's given to you to live with and partner with in this life. So, getting back to Paul and the Philippians, in light of all the love that he has for them, he prays that their love would abound more and more. What love is he talking about? The love that they had already displayed for him and for Christ. And he doesn't just pray for unfettered emotion. But for love which is controlled by the knowledge of the scriptures. And shaped by moral perception and insight. He's talking about the ability to recognize right and wrong. Using the knowledge of God's word. And why is this? so that they could approve the things that are excellent. In the Greek, this carries the imagery of testing the authenticity of different metals such as those used in money. Paul prays for the Philippians to be able to differentiate so that they could avoid error and establish right priorities. And all of this with the purpose of calling the Causing, rather, the Philippians to be pure and blameless until Christ's return. Pastor John MacArthur notes that the Greek word for pure means genuine. And may have originally meant tested by sunlight. Tested by sunlight. You see, in the ancient world, dishonest pottery dealers, they would fill the cracks in their interior products with wax before glazing and painting them and this would make worthless pots uh, difficult to distinguish from the expensive ones. The only way to avoid being defrauded was to hold the pot up to the sun making the wax filled cracks obvious. So dealers would then mark they're fine pottery that could withstand sun testing as sincera, or without wax. Sincera. And you see there, where we possibly also got the word sincere. Other versions of the Bible at like the NS, We actually use the word sincere for pure. Because they recognize that relationship there. So, blameless can be translated as without offense referring to relational integrity so he's talking about being pure and blameless Christians are to live lives of true integrity that do not cause others to sin and lastly he prays that they be filled with the fruit that righteousness produces which comes through Christ and all of this is to the glory and praise of God The fruit that righteousness produces is good works. Put simply, in view of all the Philippians have done, he prays that God would grant them to do yet more. But is it for Paul's own benefit primarily that he prays this? No, but for the glory and praise of God. Does not the scripture say, Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven? My hope is that we here at CRBC would pray for each other like Paul does for the Philippians. When last have you prayed for the spiritual growth of your brethren? When last have you sought to care for them as fellow participants in the gospel by petitioning God on their behalf? Praying for other Christians is both how you respond to their partnership and how you can partner with them in the gospel. We must recognize as sin any neglect of our fellow Christians since we are commanded to love them. Apathy towards them simply is not an option. So in conclusion, we have just seen what it means to have partners in the gospel and how we ought to respond to them. But if you are hearing me tonight and you have not put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then far from being able to have partnership with any Christians, you have no part with Christ himself. Only those who have been washed by Christ have any part with him, as the Bible says. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian because you've been going to church since you were young or because you went up to the altar and prayed one time or maybe you were even baptized. But do you see the fruit of repentance in your life? Do you desire to be with other Christians, worshiping God? Do you have a care for the cause of Christ? Do you have a care that there are people, even next door to you, who don't worship Christ, who mock Him every day? Does that bother you? Are you moved with thankfulness to God for His good gifts, Of brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm not saying that if you can't answer yes to every single one of those questions That that means you're not a Christian Because even Christians struggle with responding rightly To God's provision of Christian partners But what I am saying is a true believer Will produce good fruit sooner or later And for the time that they are not producing good fruit They feel guilty. They feel pricked in the heart because they know what they should be doing. Their conscience is active because the Holy Spirit that indwells them is telling them, you ought to be loving your Christian brothers. You ought to be loving the sinner. You ought to be producing good works. You ought to stop sinning. If you're hearing me and you see no fruit or you feel no shame over your sin, then you have yet to be reconciled to Christ. You need to know that you are under God's wrath because of your sin. And the penalty for sin is death. This is eternity in conscious torment. But God, being rich in mercy, sent His only Son to live a perfect life that you could not live and die a death that you deserved taking the place on the cross that was for you. And three days later after dying such a cruel death he rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God on high. If you repent of your sin and cry out to God to have mercy on you if you believe this good news of the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And you will be welcomed into a family which is made up of redeemed people, all striving together to glorify God with their lives, all bound together in love, all giving thanks to God for one another, all confident in his saving work and praying for each other's growth all to the praise and glory of God.